You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Emily Winslow, author of three crime novels set in Cambridge, England, where she lives. She joins me today to talk about something very different than fiction, her memoir, Jane Doe January, My 20-Year Search for Truth and Justice, publishing May 24th by William Morrow Books. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Now let's, let's set this book up briefly. It's a very personal account of a cold case prosecution of a man, a stranger, who raped you when you were a drama student in Pittsburgh in 1992. It turns out he was a serial rapist, and in 2013, DNA analysis prompted the identification and arrest of this man. And now by this time, it's 2013, and you've moved to England, and you're a happily married mother of two writing detective novels, and this book is the story of your search for justice and closure. And I have to ask... Why did you need to write it? Well, first, I just, I needed to organize two sets of thoughts. I needed to organize my memories because I was going to get to testify, which is something that I had wanted for, for two decades. But when it finally happened, I realized that I, I had to prepare. I had to go back and put things in order. So that was my first thing, was writing about the event and trying to remember it in an orderly way. And then the second thing was I needed to wrap my head around all the laws involved, which were very state-specific and kind of arcane. And I had to figure out what all these words that the detectives were using meant and what the process would be. And so, again, writing it down helped me to figure it out. And then it also helped me to communicate all of those things I was learning to the people around me. Yeah, because in the beginning you say that in the days and weeks after the assault, you wrote as much as you talked Oh, yes. And what is the, because I've talked to some people about how therapeutic sort of writing your life story can be or how it can get you past trauma. Was that the case for you? I found that when I, when I figured it out, when I found the, the paragraph or sentence that encapsulated that the very specific feeling of not just the whole thing, because you can't, you can't capture the whole thing. Uh, in a page. But just when I would say today, the thing I'm struggling with today is this, and I would catch it and pin it down. And then it felt like, oh, okay, I've got that one. Now I can move on to the next one and discover what the next one is. Yeah, you cite that very well in the beginning when there's a, you make some rules around your immediate recovery. And one of the things is, I will accept help during the day, but not at night. And there's the one of the nights where you very much are inclined to ask for help, but instead you write it down. And it, it does help you, right? It gets you It, it gets you was, that and that was, that was the first time. That was when I discovered that writing it yeah. down was helpful. And it was, I thought, I wrote it down because I was going to tell it to somebody the next morning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then I went to sleep, and when I woke up and I reread it, I didn't need yeah. to say it. I was like, oh, I've got it. It's here. Yeah, that's very poignant. Now tell us, where does the title come from? So we were kept anonymous in the press, which is a good law. So, you know, we're Jane Doe. And we we both had been attacked in the same year, 1992. So I just thought of us as Jane Doe January and Jane Doe November. And that's not something that anybody else called us. That's That's just how I thought of it myself as we prepared for trial. And you open the book with the discovery that your rapist has been identified due to this successful investigation of the other rape. 
And you say that your first reaction is relief, and it's very quickly followed by jealousy. Oh, yes. So tell us about that. Because of the things required for the prosecution, my DNA evidence was was going to have to still be viable in order for for my crime to be attached to that prosecution. And, you know, that's that evidence was 20 years old. And um, there was no guarantee it would still work. And so I was so thrilled to know who it was, finally. But maybe I just wouldn't even be involved in the case at all, and that was devastating. Right, there's a point where you say... It's important for you to be able to say, oh, he got 20 years or he got 25 years so so that it would somehow. I I don't hate to put words in your mouth, but do you feel like that would legitimize your trauma? Like why why do you feel that that would have helped? Because then, you know, then you can say this thing that happened was worth 30 years in prison. It. It mattered. Got it. And instead, until you get something like that, you just have to say, this thing happened, and then everybody gets to judge for themselves what yeah, they it's get worth. To, yeah, they get to, yeah, that's right. They get to put the, the level of trauma or yeah. the, the level of disruption or whatever it is on it. Now, remind us, how much time passes between identifying the rapist and then the resolution of the case? Thirteen months which I say it now and it sounds very quick. And actually, Pittsburgh does prioritize getting sex crimes through the courts quickly. But uh, living through it, those 13 months, my goodness, that felt very, very long. Well, even reading through it, there are times when you just wanted to scream. I, I, my next question is, how did you maintain patience and did civility. I? <laughs> I think that you did. I think that you maintained, well, civility, and then you actually develop these relationships that are very positive and meaningful with the different people involved oh, yes. in the case. So I, I think that's the as interesting as anything. The police were great, and the, the prosecutors were great. And, you know, the, the times that I got impatient and frustrated were the times when nobody was talking to me. And that that drove me crazy. And from their point of view, it made sense because they would talk to me when there was something to report. But those in-between times where nobody's talking, uh, that's when I would kind of lose my mind. But, yeah, I'm glad you think I remain civil. I, I tried to remain uh, civil. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like I get more frustrated with, like, the Verizon woman <laughs> you got with some of these people who you were dealing with. I mean, even just the little things, like the one night when you went to give your saliva swab and the first person says, oh, no, you can't do it. And you're like, actually, I was told to come at 10. You know, I was told to come at this time. And it took, you know, three people to get you in there. I mean, literally, I'm reading that. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not sure I would have been, you know, calm. Now, you also say that the identification of your assailant was sort of good news and bad news. So now that this book is about to be birthed. Mm. What? Where? Where does it land? Did it? How, how did it influence those sort of contradictory feelings? Well, I've always been very open about what happened. You know, b- back the night that it happened, I called the police right away. They came to the apartment right away, and were about to take me to the hospital. And I said, "No, wait, I have to call my friends." Uh, so I called seven friends to meet me at the hospital. And then the next day, or maybe even that night, I don't know, but then they arranged a phone tree to tell everybody else in my class at school. And it was all just dealt with very openly. And that's exactly what I wanted. Nobody was doing this behind my back or anything. I needed people to know because I was dealing with it and I needed them to deal with it with me. Obviously, as the years passed and I moved, you know, to different places, I didn't feel ashamed of talking about it. There was just kind of no reason to bring it it up. it just wouldn't come up, yeah. And so, you know, now we live in England and 
literally only my husband knew. And it's not because I was keeping it secret from anybody. It was just, why would you, you know, it happened a really long time ago. And then I'm facing this prosecution. I have to go to court. I'm dealing with police. I'm, I'm giving DNA tonight, you know, that sort of thing. I needed to tell people, but they couldn't understand what that meant without this enormous amount of backstory. So as I was writing it and then using what I was writing to share with the people around me to sort of explain it to them, it was just an enormous relief to have it explained clearly, accurately, the way that I want it said. And I guess I feel about publishing it exactly the same way. The same way. It's, you know, that's It's what happened. It is an absolutely true artifact of what I felt and what my opinions were. And even if my feelings about it change over time, that's exactly how I felt at that moment. And it's it's true. Mm -hmm. And how has your faith affect your response to the act over the years? I have never felt that believing in God means that God intervenes and makes life lovely for you. In fact, if you look at sort of the origins of religion and and what people are crying out to do is they're crying out to explain injustice and cope with terrible things. So it's always kind of flummoxed me when People say, oh, no, a terrible thing happened. How can you still believe? And it's like, no, it's the other way around. Of course terrible things happen. We know that terrible things happen. Something terrible happening to me, it's awful, but I wouldn't say it's a surprise that I suddenly realized, oh, no, there are terrible things in the world. I I knew that. And religion is, is the comfort for that. My faith has been a comfort, not something that ever felt particularly challenged by this. And give us, this is the deepest question I'm You can refuse to answer, but (laughs) give us your thoughts on forgiveness. Oh, that is so hard because it's been very difficult for me to figure out what forgiveness means. So there's, there's one metaphor in the Bible. Obviously, forgiveness is described in a lot of different ways, but there's one metaphor described as the, as the forgiveness of debt, where you're saying this person doesn't owe anything anymore. You know, if we were to follow that, In this case, it would be me saying he doesn't need to be punished. He doesn't need Mm. to go to prison. Mm. And I know I I wanted him to go to prison. Um, Absolutely. And so I really struggled with that. And and bizarrely, people were asking me just right up front saying, oh, have you forgiven him? And I'm like, wow. That's what I found found so remarkable. That is a that's a that's a pretty um, intense question. And. And I would ask them, I would say, do you think he shouldn't go to jail? And they were horrified and they would say, of course he should go to jail. And I'm saying, well, then what, then what, what do we mean here? And so I don't know what's meant by forgiveness. I know that my faith says I have to forgive. <laughs> and so I've, I've found that to be an enormous challenge. And I've tried to be compassionate towards him. I've tried to see him as a person who must have been in some kind of painful situation to feel like he needed to do these things. And so that's, that's as far as I got as I try to view him compassionately. And whether or not that's good enough to count as forgiveness, I don't know. But I also think of it in a lot of directions in your life. I mean, obviously, the biggest one would, would be him. But I, I think of it when your friends would have said the wrong thing or, they, you know, you, oh, you know yeah. what I mean? You should, I think that throughout you displayed a lot of grace and a lot of generosity in sort of assuming that folks want to do the right thing. And then if they miss, it's not intentional in, in a lot of cases. You know what I mean? So I oh, think yes. of it in those. So I almost feel like 
you might have given it, you know, a lot of it over here. And, and okay, you couldn't pull 100% over there. <laughs> but, but even to get to the compassion and to even think through what his life might have been like or you know, those things, I think, is quite amazing. I know that it was hard for people around me, especially being in a, in a different country, especially being in England, especially being in Cambridge, where the culture is just so different. And I was being open about it. And I was used to not just being American, but I was used to being an actor where, right. you know, yeah. everybody Nobody is, is super open. <laughs> and, you know, all I have to do in America is say, this is what's going on and show a willingness to talk about it. And people will ask me questions and we'll have a back and forth. And it's, it's all really good. And what I found is that in, in Cambridge, the people are a lot more formal. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of hesitance. Even when I would introduce the subject, mm-hmm. they were just paralyzed by not knowing what they were supposed to do. And I found that tremendously painful because the more in pain one is, the harder it is to ask. Of course. Yeah. And the harder it is to push. But I discovered that I had to if I wanted to get what I wanted, which was to get people to talk about it. And what I discovered is that they really, really cared, mm-hmm. and they just didn't know what to do. And so I would literally just say, this is what I need. Wow. And they came through hugely. Once, once we got to that point, and I explained it and set it out, they were there for me 100%, and that was really lovely. Yeah, good. All right, let's talk a little bit about your actual writing process, mm-hmm. and for this book in particular. So, so you've got kids, and you, you've got a career writing <laughs> yeah. fiction novels. Did your habits change? Was there something distinct about the way that you approached literally getting words down on the page for this project? So just before the arrest happened, which came out of nowhere Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I had just started a new novel and I had written 60, 70 pages out of 300. And as soon as the arrest happened, that just stopped. That novel was just, I was not going back there at the moment. And all I could do was write this and and writing it was it was probably the easiest writing I've ever done just in terms of the urge was always there because new things happened all the time and every time something new happened I needed to figure it out and sometimes it was a new thing happening in Pittsburgh and I needed to wrap my head around it and sometimes it was just me having to cope with the waiting and my feelings changing and me having to figure that out and so the the writing was it was urgent well, I'm very glad you wrote this, particularly because we've been talking about Jane Doe January and Emily Winslow, and she's got a couple pages in the back that sort of address this issue for those that might find themselves in the same situation, whether it's a friend of somebody or somebody yeah. who does suffer an assault. So I, I think that that's a, great, that's a great addition. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right, so it's Jane Doe January, and it's available wherever ebooks, print books, and audiobooks are sold. We're pleased to offer three audio excerpts from Jane Doe January. You'll hear the first one now, and you can hear two more in the coming weeks. This first excerpt is from January 2014, after Arthur Fryer had at last been extradited to Pennsylvania and a DNA match had been made between him and the author. That is when the process of the trial was about to begin. It was exactly 22 years since the crime itself. The Day of New Year's Eve. Detective Campbell tells me that, at last, prisoner transport is being arranged. A new date, January 13th, has appeared on New York's docket, but she assures me that it's not a new hearing. It's a status conference and deadline by which Pennsylvania must have picked him up. I wait, ready to fly at a few days' notice.
Once Fryer arrives in Pittsburgh, the hearing has to happen within 13 days. Even though the lab has matched my evidence, he can't actually be charged for me until they've officially confirmed the match. They may or may not finish this in time for my charge to catch up with the other victims. But even if I can't yet testify, I'm going. Urgent things have been completed. I've finished a revision of my next novel and am in a lull while others are reading it. I've dug up our tax numbers and handed them in to our UK accountant, barely making the deadline for her to be able to turn those numbers into finished returns. Gavin puts off the business trips he's supposed to be booking. We brainstorm childcare options depending on what date the hearing may fall. I dry clean an outfit for court. I plan to dress carefully. Makeup, blow-dry, well-fitting clothes. I want to present myself flatteringly, aware that onlookers will mentally rate whether I was worth it. I assume they'll wonder why he bothered. I'm middle-aged now, and fat from indulgence and babies and sedentary work. I was pretty then. Not special, but the perfectly serviceable prettiness of being young. I'm grateful for the victim protection policies that will prevent me from being photographed, drawn, or described in this context. I'm open about what happened and about what's happening now, but only on my own terms, in my own words. This year, the anniversary, January 12th, is on a Sunday, just as it was then. I don't mention it to anyone on the day, but it always feels strange to me when that happens. It's like an eclipse, or that time when I was in middle school and all the planets lined up, or like the tick over to the year 2000. It doesn't mean anything, not really, but it feels like it should mean something. It means something to me. I check New York's online inmate lookup every day, hoping to see that Pennsylvania has picked him up. I don't know how the physical extradition process works, except that Detective Campbell has said that two sheriffs have been sent to New York to do it. The word sheriff makes me crack a smile. It sounds very Wild West. When I Google for extradition services and processes, the top hits are independent companies. They advertise that they are cost-effective, available seven days a week, and that their vehicles are equipped with little segregation cells for the violent, mentally ill, and juvenile, and for keeping the sexes apart. One has the cheerful slogan, Nowhere to Run, and branded hats, coffee mugs, and teddy bears for sale. Another company's YouTube video, with a background soundtrack of the theme song from the reality show Cops, promises consistent, reliable, timely handling of your prisoners. I find my impatience placated by the language used, word choices classing Arthur Fryer in the way of a zoo animal or object. He doesn't need to get to Pittsburgh to start being punished. When I finally see the change, see him listed as, as far as New York's concerned, released, it's late at night, after we've had some guests over to watch a long movie. I have trouble falling asleep. 
I've done the journey between the New York area and Pittsburgh many, many times to visit my sister at college, then later to go to college there myself. The drive with my parents used to take about seven hours with the stopover at the state's halfway point in a town that exists for only that purpose, made up of motels and restaurants and shops selling Pennsylvania-themed souvenirs. Taking the Amtrak train was a bit of a longer trip, blissfully zoning out, listening to musical theater tapes on my Walkman. I loved those journeys, those elongated transition times, and it's uncomfortable to now share the route with Fryer. By the time I wake up, I figure he must have gotten there. The confirmation report from the lab comes in a few days later, and he's charged for me. My hearing is added to the docket for the same day as the other victims, already scheduled. I'm told on Friday that I'll be testifying Thursday, just six days away. I realize that I've been wishing so hard for the hearing because I felt that I needed a new and significant development to justify continuing to talk about my ongoing panic and distress. But instead of the upcoming trip reinforcing my upset, it makes me giddy. Detective Honan tells me that Fryer will be there and that I'll have to point him out. He assures me casually that Fryer will be shackled. That cheers me immeasurably. I'm bouncy and talk too fast. This lasts about 24 hours, through all my preparation and organization of travel details. Even as I'm in this state, I recognize that my manner is oversized, inappropriate, and probably the climb before a fall. My plans shape up. Valenta makes arrangements to be there on the day and offers me a ride to court. I explain breezily that my hotel is near, so I'll just walk. He emails back to say that he'll meet me at the hotel and walk with me. That's what does it. That's the trigger that makes me understand, like a sudden view over the edge of a cliff, that this is serious and probably difficult, and that I'll need support. Everything in me shifts back to emotional again, this time somber emotional instead of panicky. I've felt this shift before, at the hospital 22 years ago. It was when I was being interviewed by the detectives, and I was frustrated by the time Classes were starting up for the semester in just two days, and I had planned to spend the evening memorizing the monologues that were due. I'd been lazy all Christmas, and I hadn't even started. I needed that evening if I was going to get it done. The evidence collection and questioning and gyne exam were all getting in my way. I'd had work to do. It was either Valenta or the other detective, the tall blonde one, who'd interrupted my frantic worrying to say, gently but seriously and a little sadly, you're not going back to school on Tuesday. I remember that punch-in-the-gut feeling, the realization that this is bigger than I'd let myself perceive. Valenta now making sure that I have someone to walk to court with, well, 
it hits me like that. Back when it happened, my parents and my sister and my high school friends had wanted to visit. They wanted to look after me. I didn't let them. My top priority had been to keep normal anything that could be kept normal. People from other spheres of my life suddenly appearing in my college town would not have been normal. It would have rocked a very delicate balance. I made my parents wait for a performance as an excuse to come, because they always came for performances. Taking cast pictures is normal. Applause is normal. Waiting and so keeping my world steady was a greater comfort than upending my world just to give me a hug a few weeks sooner. Discreet worlds is why I won't let Gavin come with me to Pittsburgh. Besides one of us needing to stay home with the kids, I don't want to bring any part of my present life back there. I'll be passing from one world into another and out again. It's an expedition made easier by my uncontaminated world here at home staying the same and very far away. Deliberately going alone confuses people, but it's what I want. One of the most liberating things about the aftermath of the rape had been that I was asked repeatedly, what do you want? I'd felt then, for the first time in my life, that that question was genuinely open-ended. Before that, I'd always assumed that there was a right answer to figure out and hew as closely to as possible. After, for about a year, I was allowed anything. I could want to be alone or want company, feel desire or be frigid, want to rage or want to forgive. Anything was acceptable. It's a trick I still use in the privacy of my own mind to figure myself out. I ask myself what I want as if I'm allowed to want anything. I don't always do what I want, but it's interesting information to have. I want to book a hotel. This is strange because I have friends I can stay with, really nice friends who I like and miss and can trust. But I don't want to have to compose myself and be social and explain things at the end of each day. I don't want to worry about how crying or just shutting myself in my room might upset someone. I want to see my police file. I'm curious about my past self, as if she's another person. I don't want to visit my old apartment building. I'm not scared of it, just not interested. I passed by it once, years ago, during a brief visit shortly after getting married, on our way to going out to lunch with friends. It didn't affect me. I want to learn what it's like to see Arthur Fryer in person. I might panic or cry or get angry, or I might not recognize him. He might just seem like an old man, unconnected to what he did then. I don't know if I'll be fragile or stony or indifferent. I'm curious about my future self, the me just about to be. I want to know how Arthur Fryer will react to me. Will he recognize me? If he does, will he regret or gloat?
Will he lower his eyes or laugh at me? This wondering is different from my writing a novel, where I have to decide everything, what happens and how each character will react. I don't get to choose this. I have to discover it. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts. All brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.